Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the April issue of The Lancet Neurology. My name is Nikolai Humphreys, and I'm joined by the journal's editor, Helen Frankish. Lots to talk about in this month's issue. Let's start with a discussion of a promising randomized trial concerning gene therapy for Parkinson's disease. This also received considerable media coverage when it was published online last week. Helen, what is the context here? The concept of gene therapy for Parkinson's disease is not new, is it? But remind us what the objectives of it are. In Parkinson's disease, patients have decreased levels of the neurotransmitter GABA in the subthalamic nucleus of the brain, which leads to overactivity of this structure in Parkinson's disease. And the enzyme glutamic acid decarboxylase has a key role in the formation of GABA. And in this study, the researchers hypothesized that delivery of the gene for glutamic acid decarboxylase directly into the subthalamic nucleus might lead to an increase in GABA activity and therefore dampen down the overactivity of this part of the brain in Parkinson's disease. Please summarize the methodology of the current study and explain the way that the primary outcome, motor function, is assessed. In this form of gene therapy, the gene is inserted into a harmless adeno-associated viral vector, which was then injected directly into the subthalamic nucleus of the brain. And 45 patients aged 30 to 75 years who had advanced Parkinson's disease were randomly assigned to either bilateral sham surgery or bilateral injection of the gene. And the primary outcome was the change in off-medication UPDRS motor scores at six months compared with baseline. And the assessment of this primary outcome was double-blind, so neither the patients nor the people doing the follow-up assessment were aware of which treatment the patient had received. And the results? Small numbers, but the results are promising? So yes, the numbers are quite small at just 22 and 23 patients per group, but the results are quite encouraging. At the six-month assessment, patients who had had sham surgery showed a 4.7-point improvement in the UPDRS score, so there was quite a substantial placebo effect. But those who had the gene therapy had an 8.1-point improvement on the UPDRS score, and this difference was statistically significant. And the treatment was quite safe also, so most adverse events were mild or moderate, and the most common side effects were headache and nausea. So how should we interpret these results, and what do the comment authors alongside this article have to say? As the authors point out, this is the first double-blind, randomised study that has shown a positive effect of gene therapy in Parkinson's disease, so the results are promising. But we should remember also that this is a phase two study and the numbers are quite small, so a larger trial will be needed to assess whether this treatment is suitable for more widespread clinical use. And the comment author praises the authors for doing such a meticulous study, and he also raises issues such as how long the effects of surgery will be sustained, what are the long-term effects of introducing a viral vector into the brain, and whether gene therapy will offer any advantage over current treatment, such as deep brain stimulation. Next, let's discuss a review about aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. I'm going to call it ASAH for short, if that's okay. This is a kind of stroke. Is that right, Helen? That's right. So aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage occurs when an aneurysm in the brain ruptures, causing a bleed in the brain. And although the incidence of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage has remained fairly stable over the past three years, because of improvements in management, the case fatality rate has fallen by 17% over a similar time period. 
And also, in contrast to other subtypes of stroke, subarachnoid haemorrhage occurs at a relatively young age, so the age of onset, on average, is about 55 years. So what does this review focus on specifically? The authors focus on the long-term outcome of patients who have had an aneurysmal subarachnoid haemorrhage by reviewing data on life expectancy and risk of new episodes of aneurysmal subarachnoid haemorrhage and other cardiovascular diseases, as well as describing the residual physical and cognitive deficits that patients are left with. And the authors talk about a common misconception, that closure of an aneurysm is the end of the problem. In fact, recurrence is common, and the authors talk about this as a chronic disease. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Until about a decade ago, many people were of the opinion that aneurysms were a unique event, and that by simply closing off the aneurysm, patients would effectively be cured. But, as you say, the prevailing view now is that, in fact, aneurysms are a chronic disease and they can regrow over time and new aneurysms can also develop. What are the main risk factors for ASAH recurrence? The main risk factors are high blood pressure and cigarette smoking, which, in addition to raising the risk of aneurysm recurrence, also increase patients' risk of developing other cardiovascular diseases. And there's very little data on life expectancy after subarachnoid haemorrhage. But studies have shown that mortality in people who have survived an aneurysmal subarachnoid haemorrhage is about double that of the general population. Could you also go on and tell us about the types of motor and cognitive impairments that result from ASAH? Patients who survive aneurysmal subarachnoid haemorrhage experience a range of impairments. So about one in five patients is still dependent on others up to 12 months after the event. Half of patients have cognitive impairments one year after the event. About a third of patients lose their sense of smell. And about half of patients report symptoms of anxiety and depression. So the long-term impairments are substantial and can have a negative effect on patients' quality of life, which is often exacerbated by many patients' inability to return to work afterwards. And finally, what future directions do the authors highlight in this field? Well, the authors suggest that because of the multitude of physical and cognitive problems that patients experience after a subarachnoid haemorrhage, patients should be monitored long-term in multidisciplinary outpatient clinics that consist of a stroke nurse to provide information on management of risk factors, a neuropsychologist to assess patients' depression and anxiety, and a rehabilitation physician to develop a rehabilitation plan that is tailored to each patient's individual need. Okay, staying with ASAH, the topic is discussed in your editorial this month, though focusing on the important issue of clinical care for this neurological disorder. Could you tell us a little more? Well, during the peer review of this paper, a few of the reviewers really loved the point that the authors made about the need for multidisciplinary clinics to follow up these patients long term, as well as advise patients on the importance of risk factor control to reduce the risk of recurrence. So we decided to highlight this important point in this month's editorial. So a multidisciplinary approach is clearly needed in ASAH management, but there seems to be a poor recognition of this in terms of clinical guidelines and inconsistent approaches in different countries of the world. That's right. There doesn't seem to be any data on standards of care for survivors of aneurysmal subarachnoid haemorrhage, 
But anecdotal evidence suggests that although multidisciplinary clinics have become more common in recent years, their use is not widespread. And interestingly, multidisciplinary follow-up wasn't mentioned at all in the recent AHA guidelines on the management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And we believe that mention of these clinics in future guidelines could be important for improving the outcome for patients who have had an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Thanks, Helen. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss from this month's issue? Well, just to mention, actually, that as well, we also have a couple of original research articles reporting further analyses from the recent studies of cladribine and alamtuzumab for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. And on the review side, we have papers on treatment advances in neonatal neuroprotection and neurointensive care, and an interesting paper on induced pluripotent stem cells in the modelling of neurological diseases. And that completes the April edition of the Lancet Neurology Podcast. My thanks to Helen Frankish. Please tune in next month.